Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Discovery Debrief, a podcast setting a course to discuss the future of the final frontier in Star Trek Discovery, Star Trek Picard, Strange New Worlds, Lower Decks, and more. I'm co-host Chris Clow, and right now I'm only joined by one other member of our bold panel of Star Trek franchise explorers, Mr. Cicero Holmes. Darmok and Jalad on the ocean. Oh, excuse me. I'm I'm sorry. Uh, stupid <laughs> translator. I'm happy to be working with you, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent poll. Yeah, um, we did have. It's funny. The, the The panel's been dropping like flies today. I thought we were going right. to have a full crew compliment when the day started, um, but then uh, Doctor Clow reminded right. me that there were some other things that she had to attend to, so she fell off. And then we actually did start uh, to record here. With Zachy, but unfortunately right. he had to run off, but he might show up later. So we'll hope that's the case. But if not, right. you know, we'll continue to soldier on and we'll welcome him in a future episode. But um, this is a momentous day, not only yeah. because we're recording another episode of Discovery Debrief, which is always great, but Star Trek is back. It's back yes. in um, a little bit of a less conventional form, as I think is the case with this show, but it is back nonetheless. Because we have now seen two episodes of season two of Star Trek Lower Decks. And that's the primary thing that has brought us together today. But also, uh, Fathom Events recently had a 35th anniversary screening of Star Trek for The Voyage Home, which I was fortunate enough to be able to attend, even on a family vacation. Um, and so we'll, we'll revisit that too, because it was my first time seeing it on the big screen. And I know that Cicero was able to see it when it originally came out. So we're going to compare notes a little bit about Star Trek four. But before we get into that stuff, uh, since it has been a while, Cicero, what have you been up to my friend? Um, you know, uh, unfortunately not a lot of Trek, a lot of sci-fi, but not a lot of Trek. Um, I finished the expanse, um, with my stepson. Um, one of the great things that has happened over the course of, of COVID has been introducing my stepson, has been introducing my stepson to sci-fi, um, to spacefaring sci-fi, um, the sci-fi that we kind of know and love here on Discovery Debrief, um, and uh, finding that he has started his love for it. I know that, that we've talked about how much he's loved the Orville, how much I love the Orville. Uh, but we went and we watched Battlestar Galactica. Uh, I think we said last, last year, uh, last season when, uh, lower decks came out, he really enjoyed lower decks, even without getting the references. Um, but, uh, yeah. So like, I'm excited to just kind of get him, you know, make him more of a nerd. Like that's, that's, that part's been really cool. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, outside, outside of that, man, just, uh, staying safe, mm -hmm. um, you know, fortunate enough to be able to work from home and, and, uh, watch a lot of really great television on all of these different streaming services and, uh, just happy, happy to be able to talk to you, man. It's been a while. It has, it really has. Um, in terms of uh, what I've been up to, besides just um, you know taking care of a child and uh, and 
staying on top of uh, regular tasks like eating and breathing. Uh, <laughs> so um, for, for those of you that don't know, in my day job, I am a business-to-business reporter. Uh, I cover a very specific segment of the mortgage industry. And uh, the publication that I write for was recently acquired by another larger organization. So I feel kind of like a baseball player that's been traded. But um, that, it, it, in a good way, I mean, the um, the organization that I'm a part of now, since it is bigger, it has more resources and uh, and potentially more visibility, too, for the material right. that I'm, I'm doing on a daily basis. So that has really kind of consumed a lot of my time. Um, I am trying to get in some gaming here and there, particularly when it comes to sci-fi stuff. I beat I, I start and beat the original Mass Effect for the oh, first right. time. And, oh, for uh, the first time! For the first time, and oh I, man, uh, we've got to talk about that. Wow, yeah, <laughs> we should. We, I wow. mean, this might even be an appropriate forum to do so at some point. But um, right. I'm knee deep in Mass Effect Two, oh, yeah. but uh, have been a little distracted on the gaming front with some other things because the uh, the HD remaster of um, Legend of Zelda Skyward Sword came out, and I had never mm-hmm. played that either. So, um, and I, I, um, relatively recently gone through some other entries in the series and had gotten up to Skyward Sword. So it was, it was like, well, crap, I guess I'm just going to put Commander Shepard aside for a little bit. And then, cause I'll be able to blow through Zelda pretty quickly, I think in comparison to something like Mass Effect. Yeah. But then, and I think you might've seen earlier today, I, yeah. uh, <laughs> jumped on a, a sale that uh, the Best Buy had on Cyberpunk 2077, the infamous Cyberpunk yeah. 2077. I was able to pick it up for 10 bucks, And to me, that price was right, considering some of the problems that it has had right. uh, associated with its launch. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, for what it's worth on the Series X, I don't, be, I don't seem to be running into really any problems, at least so far. Right on. Um, it's quite an engrossing world. But, um, I mean, that's no excuse for treating developers badly and releasing a game with very little QA and meeting a release date above any and all other practical concerns. But that's why I didn't feel too bad with a $10 spend as opposed to to something more. So into that, and uh, I don't know, I'm probably just going to jump between those three games um, in, in my free time in addition to catching up on comic book stuff like Batman 89 number one came out the comic book that's uh, continuing the story of Keaton's Batman after Batman returns. Oh, nice. And that was pretty cool. First issue. And then this week, uh, Superman 78 number one is coming out, which is continuing the story of Christopher Reeve Superman. So it's kind of cool that they're oh, okay. jumping back into those wells. Um, and of course, you know, we're getting ready to see Michael Keaton's Batman again pretty soon. So is it, uh, isn't the continuation of Christopher Reeve's Batman really just Superman Returns with Brandon Roth? Oh, Christopher Reeve Superman. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Christopher Reeve Superman. Sorry, Christopher Reeve's Batman would have been awesome though. By the way, um, yeah, yeah, that yeah. would have been cool. <laughs> an an awesome type of Batman. That would have yeah. been amazing. Hey, I, I mean, he he probably could have played a pretty good Bruce Wayne as well. Yeah. But. Um, yeah. Yes and no. Uh, I mean, Superman Returns itself treated the first movie as absolute gospel. So the first movie certainly happened in uh, right. that character's history. Only parts of the second movie were kind of picked and chosen from to build sure. out 
Brandon Routh's Superman's backstory. And then in the, uh, the crisis DC TV crossover, I think that they basically ran with the idea that the Routh Superman we saw there was the Christopher Reeve Superman. Um, but in terms of this book, I'm not sure if, if it's jumping ahead of, uh, like if it's including three and four or if it's kind of going with the idea that Superman returns is in this, I'm going to be interested to see what it does. I'm not totally sure sure what it's going to be doing, but um, pretty, pretty interesting premise for a book. And I think a lot of fans have clamored for stuff like that. The next step for us longtime fans will be getting unfinished scripts that we know exist from these film series Hmm. into comic book form. I think that'd be be awesome. Really cool, that'd be, but that'd be really awesome. That uh, is I just, I just want to, I just want to call back to something else um, and ask you this question: Imagine if a year ago from today, Chris, I told you that y- you would be able to get in twelve months and three hundred and sixty-five days, you'd be able to get Cyberpunk twenty seventy-seven for eighty percent off its price. I would not have believed that. I would not have believed that possible considering the reputation of the developer, which is was pretty immaculate this time yeah. a year ago. Yes. Um, so yeah, it's, 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 it's funny that you mentioned that, especially it it's the full fat experience, man. Right. It's, um, it is remarkable. I don't often go out for discs, but I couldn't pass yeah. that up. So. Yeah. Yeah, you know, no, we'll definitely. we'll see what happens. I'll I'll dive in a little deeper to it. Did you pick that game up? I picked it up at launch, man, uh, on PC. Oh, so you so, didn't have yeah, to so, deal with it. Yeah, him. so I I built a PC um, to play Elite Dangerous, mm-hmm. but also to play Cyberpunk. Okay. Um and uh and I I I played Cyberpunk for a little while. Um, but then I decided to wait until it was, you know, patched and done. Sure. And and then I, you know, then I can play it. So I still haven't played it yet. Hmm. Gotcha. Well, it makes sense. I mean, considering all the difficulties that have accompanied that game, but uh, yeah, who knows? Maybe we'll end up finishing it at the same time. Right. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, uh, well, let's start off the core Star Trek discussion now. Oh yeah. Uh, by talking about the 35th anniversary screening of Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home. So Star Trek IV has often been... I, I, I think that, interestingly, Star Trek IV has the some of the most uh, recognizable moments in the film series, certainly, but... It also seems to be one of the more generally popular Star Trek movies with audiences that are not necessarily Star Trek fans, or at the very least, they've heard of the idea that whales featured prominently in a Star Trek movie. And um, one of the things that I've just always loved about Star Trek for is that concept, because if you hear that just kind of out in the wild, you're pro- you're I think you're bound to think that how is that supposed to be anything resembling good you know if you're if you're you're predicating a Star Trek movie on the idea of saving the whales okay yeah sure most people like whales but how is that the basis for like a sci-fi adventure film and um 
it uses that concept in such a, a, a brilliantly creative way that also gives way to uh, a surprising amount of the allegory that the, the franchise accomplishes at its best without being inaccessible. I mean, you will clearly get the most out of Star Trek four if you've at least watched two and three, because that is very much the trilogy within the original film series. Sure. Um, but Star Trek four is such an eminently watchable movie and it doesn't require the buy-in of those previous movies. And I mean, I can't, I think I've, I've mentioned before when we talked about the screening Cicero that you and I, and, um, and Rachel and our friend Adam attended for Star Trek, the motion picture. I don't remember when the first time I watched this movie was, mm. um, it's just kind of always been a part of the franchise that I love so much. So the opportunity, as soon as it arose for seeing it on the big screen for the first time, I, I, I saw that Phantom events was putting it on for the 35th anniversary. And, um, I realized that I was going to be out of town and potentially out of pocket for this event, which really bummed me out. But lo and behold, there was a theater within driving distance from where I was vacationing <laughs> that was participating in this. And, and I, I couldn't say no. Um, obviously the world has not yet moved on from the thing that has paralyzed it for much of the past year and a half. But, um, you know, and, and we mentioned this a little bit off mic, but it was theater with seven people total, I believe. And if you're a star Trek fan, chances are you're generally like-minded and open to the idea that science is real. So, um, I, I felt sufficiently, uh, protected enough being fully vaccinated and masked um, in a theater with very few people and had a great time that, like I said, with the motion picture too, the theater does this movie, a lot of favors, the humor striking in a communal environment, the effectiveness of that can, can't be overstated. Even if there were only, you know, seven people watching the movie that day, right? it all hit at the right moments. And of course the right moments are Dr. McCoy's moments, the moments that he chooses, <laughs> but you also have the hello computer. The c- and computer. You, have, <laughs> you have a, a Russian on the streets of San Francisco in the 1980s, walking up to a police officer asking where nuclear vessels are. <laughs> and that's just hilarious in and of itself, considering the timeline that this movie came out in. Um, but also too, it's just uh, the the effects were. You saw a few more blemishes because I believe that the version of the movie we watched, uh, you know, for those who aren't f- fully aware, on September seventh, the first four Star Trek films are being released in four K for the first time on physical media. Awesome. And uh, so this looked like it was a four K restoration. The grain was visible, but it wasn't overpowering. But I thought that the, uh, the matte paintings were a little more, uh, outwardly visible than they mm-hmm. maybe had been at a lower resolution, but it doesn't take away from anything. This movie is great. It gives so much credence to the, the ensemble of the original crew. This is really them at their best when it comes to being together and where everybody has something to do, because that can be a really big problem that the original crew has is 
it front loads Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, and then everybody else is just kind of left moving furniture, as Walter Koenig said once. But um, everybody gets their moment in this movie, and that's one of the things that's most satisfying about it, particularly if you already have a pre-existing affinity for these characters. So Star Trek Four, it might not be my favorite Star Trek movie, but it is certainly very well deserving of its reputation in the upper echelon of the film series. And uh, I'm really glad that I've got it notched on my belt to, to have seen theatrically. So uh, Cicero, you said that you were able to watch this movie when it came out originally in theaters in, uh, in late 1986. Uh, yeah. Tell me about your general feelings about the movie, what you remember seeing it for the first time and how you see it today. Um, well, so I loved it, you know, let, let, let's get that out of the way. Uh, first, what I, what I love thinking about this movie, it makes me think about my folks, um, because they were huge sci-fi nerds. So I remember us all enthusiastically going to the movies to see wrath of Khan, um, multiple times. Uh, because the I remember the earwig thing <laughs> freaking me out because, you know, I know Wrath of Khan was what, 82, 83? 82, yeah. Yeah, so I was six. Um, <laughs> and so, um, but like, yeah, we saw that multiple times in the theater and then, and then searched for Spock. We enthusiastically went to the theater to go see. And then A Voyage Home, we enthusiastically w- went to the theater to go see. And in retrospect, you know, thinking back on Star Trek and Star Trek films, like this was where I think it, it so everyone loves Wrath of Khan. Um, you know, uh, search for Spock is obviously necessary because Wrath of Khan happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they and love the voyage home. Most people feel like if they had stopped at a voyage home, everything would be fine. And and uh, above and beyond uh, a voyage home, they're they're good, but they but they don't reach the highs that a voyage home. Uh, brings forth and what a voyage home does for the franchise is like you said, Chris, it is, it is incredibly um, approachable for non-fans. If you are aware of Star Trek, but have never really seen any of the shows, but you know, Captain Kirk is, you know, who Spock is um, and you know that they do stuff in space, but you want a, a jumping off point. I think that that it doesn't really get any better than a voyage home because it is it is all the space stuff in the future in the present which happens to be now be the past. Yeah. Right? Um so like so you can as a viewer you can marry technology that you do understand with this technology that you don't understand and um and then be able to uh gain an affinity for these characters via a a uh a backdrop and um uh, like set pieces that are familiar to you so mm-hmm. you're not trying to learn everything all at the same time sure. um i think i think that really really goes works for the film um the other thing that is interesting about this film is so you talked about how 
Star Trek and the whales seem anachronistic. Um, in 1986, not so much. Okay. Because, because, so we talked about Superman earlier. Yeah. A year after this movie released, a year after Star Trek Four released, Superman Four released. And the theme of Superman Four and the theme of Star Trek Four were things that were part of the zeitgeist of the mid 80s. Saving the whales was was a rally cry for for progressives in the mid eighties. Um, so so a movie about saving whales in the future because that was something that we were constantly hyper aware of. Besides the Cold War, um, was made sense right. So it made sense that that was the plot that oh. Because, you know, we've been talking about you got to save the whales. And because we didn't listen, now there are no whales and Earth gets destroyed. You know, Earth has a chance of getting destroyed. Because Progressives in the 80s were concerned about the world being destroyed. So that's what <laughs> the art reflected. Right, right. Um, and and so. And I don't, by so, laughing, I don't mean to belittle that. That's a very. Right, no, no. I'm not, <laughs> no, it's, yeah, it's, it's you know. It's, it's comical only because we didn't listen. Right. Keep from crying. Um, so like, so that, that part made a lot of sense. And, and like, so that conceit wasn't even close to being far-fetched. It was, it, you know, it was apocryphal and, and, and prophetic for viewers of of the film again most people that are going to star trek films probably think a certain you know think more progressively and and you know are kind of you're preaching to the converted uh basically when when you're going to see a star trek film and talking about uh you know uh, natural resource conservation and you know uh, preservation of of life even if it's not a human uh to to mirror that again, talking about Superman four, Quest for Peace was Christopher Reeve talking about nuclear bombs and and you know nuclear war and nuclear missiles. Um, the other existential threat of the mid eighties was the Cold War and the fact that you know at any moment, either the Soviets or the Americans were going to shoot you know, we're going to destroy the world via the nu nuclear weapons. So, you know, so, uh, so we got, we got both of those films. And I think, you know, quest for peace was, was rightfully so panned because it was terrible. Um, even though the message was, was, uh, a good one, uh, star Trek four, you know, voyage home wasn't panned because the story was, was they added humor and an adventure to this story and this allegory uh, for, um, you know, what we need to do as humans in the present um, to save, to kind of save the future. You know, it's, uh, an, but, it's, a, it's an interesting comparison because, um, yeah, obviously the, the heads of the creative teams were in similar places in terms of saying, hey, we're going to tell stories about uh, averting disaster as opposed right. to falling into disaster because the fantasy of the time is that we will avert disaster, that we're going to overcome these problems and that things are going to be okay. 
Um, but of course, you know, comparing the Star Trek and Superman film series, they're in very different places by their fourth installments, right? I mean, yes, yes. Star Trek three, even though it wasn't as well liked as the second film, it was still successful and yes. spawned a sequel. Whereas Superman four, uh, the rights were purchased by a very small studio known or very small production house known for mm -hmm. making movies on shoestring budgets, basically. And um, the only way that they could make sure to secure Christopher Reeve's involvement was with the promise to make a dream project of his and by giving him creative control of, of right. the story. And had St Superman been in more capable hands from the studio perspective and had it been given a better budget, it might have turned out better than it did. I actually tend to personally prefer Superman four to Superman three, but be that as it may, I still recognize <laughs> oh, you know, you, that you'd rather get shot in the eye versus stabbed in the kidney. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean th this isn't a Superman pod. I've I've talked in the past about why I prefer Superman four in general. I just feel like it takes Superman himself a little more seriously than the third movie did, but I still like Richard Pryor. It's just like of course. It's funny. Richard Pryor was so respectful. Like they were counting on him to be uh, off the wall and kind of lampoonish. Yeah. Right. But he liked Superman. So he's yeah. like, all right, I'm going to do what's on the page. And then they got mad. It's like, well, you should have told him that, you know, right. but, but anyway, no. yeah, but yeah, yeah exactly. Super, anyway. Superman three has my favorite moment in all Superman films. And that is Clark Kent versus Superman. Look, um, that's a great scene. No one's yeah. going to be able to 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 top that when you yeah. compare the specifics of those last. When I think of the the parts that I love about Superman four, it's usually entirely on Christopher Reeve by himself, right? Um, which I guess technically that fight is too, but it was still <laughs> uh, it was still like an action set piece, and Superman yeah. four didn't have any of those really. I mean, it tried no, no. to, but they all looked cheap and embarrassing and you saw the black curtains on the space sets but anyway right but yes star trek star trek so, was in a totally yes, different totally situation. different totally different space on an upswing where yes. superman was winding down and superman yeah. 4 ultimately killed that franchise for nearly 20 years whereas superman 4 led to more material and probably most directly led to the development and execution of star trek the next generation i believe so I believe so. I, I think I, I don't know if anyone has come out and said that specifically, um, but uh, TNG started in 88, seven, 87. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, it obviously Wrath of Khan. Uh, I don't know that. Oh, OK. Samuel L. Jackson doesn't know about Wrath of Khan. Um, oh. but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, but yeah, Wrath of Khan and, and then search for Spock and, and obviously a voyage home, um, really paved the way for Star Trek fever enough so much that they got, they were able to get a new series greenlit. Yeah. Which led to and a bunch of new movies, 18 years of uninterrupted time on television. Yeah. In addition yeah. to six other movies in that time right. after that. So yeah, who'd have thunk it? Yeah. No, I, 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 there's a lot to love about star Trek four and um, you know, it's, it's such an eminently watchable movie and 
Something else that kind of comes to mind is that really when you look at all of the TOS films, um, spiritually, I feel like Star Trek four is most in line with the spirit of its series. Um, it feels kind of like a bigger budget fish out of water TOS episode in the sense that it, the, the ensemble is front and center, but it's also generally lighthearted, especially when compared to the two previous films. And, well, the three previous films, really. Right, right. And, um, you know, it got a little too goofy in number five, and then it went in an entirely different direction in number six. But uh, they they pitched it perfect for Star Trek Four, And um, I can't wait to see the 4K presentation of that in my own home uh, in just about two weeks. So that, right. should be, that should be a good time. Um, yeah, I... I- I really do think that it is the film again. I, I it's the film that if someone was aware of Star Trek but had never seen any Star Trek content, that I would show them before I showed them anything else. Because I think, like you you said accurately, that it best prepares you for what TOS will be most of the time. Um, while giving you enough about the characters to, to get you enticed. Yeah. It it was funny before the movie started and it's paramount just goes back to the well when it comes to special features on things. I think (laughs) the special features that were created back in 2008 have been in every subsequent release of these movies since then. But before the movie started, they showed one of the, um, the featurettes that was featured on the original Blu-ray release for Star Trek four, where Harv Bennett, the producer who was basically responsible for reviving the Star Trek film franchise with the second movie, he said, there's an old axiom when it comes to storytelling in the first chapter or in the first act, you uh, run your characters up a tree in the second act. You try to shake them until they fall out of it. And in the third act, they get down from the tree. And two, three, and four really do kind of follow those, uh, those ideas. And that movie, I was surprised at how, and granted, you know, I'm a nerd. I love these characters more than most people probably should. I was surprised at how emotional I got at the end of Star Trek four in the theater. I've seen this movie countless times Sure, for some reason, you know, seeing Spock and Sarek kind of settle their differences on the big screen seeing uh, Jim Kirk have a chance to fulfill his greatest destiny again by being given command of a starship, seeing the, uh, the reveal of the enterprise a for the first time, all that stuff just hit me so hard watching it in the theater, harder than I was expecting. And um, I mean, if you have a chance to watch these movies in the, in the theater, I'd absolutely take them as long as you know, you're comfortable and you feel safe and, uh, and, you're making sure that you're fulfilling all of the necessities that come with human existence when you see a movie. But, uh, is it, is it possible that you can watch that in the theater again? Uh, I mean, I imagine they'll do something like this again at some point. Uh, so this is also, uh, speaking of Sarek, uh, this is also the last time that, Mark Leonard and uh, Leonard Nimoy will share uh, share screen time together as father. Oh no no no! 
I guess no. I guess in uh, Undiscovered Country, he's in Undiscovered Country as well. Yeah, I don't think they directly address each other, but they do occupy the same space at the same time. Um, but both of them are in in Star Trek Six, and right. then um, obviously, well, Leonard Nimoy shows up at the very, very, very end of Unification One, One, right? Which Sarek is in. Um, but yeah, in terms they of they don't share. Yeah, they don't share screen time. Though. In terms of just like a direct interaction between the this uh, depiction of father and son, yeah, Star Trek Four is really the last time. Everything else that we've learned about how their relationship developed into the twenty fourth century was explained via exposition, right? And um, obviously, the new developments that have been applied retroactively to their relationship have been in discovery. So yeah, it's, um, it's it's a pretty special uh, sharing of moments between Mark Leonard and, uh, and Leonard Nimoy in Star Trek four. Mark Mark Leonard Nimoy. (laughs) Yeah. It's funny how that works. That's how, that's how I'd win uh, a wheel of fortune. And and it's just funny to me how, you know, Mark Leonard was up for Spock way back when, before they started shooting the cage. And Nimoy got the part. Obviously, the the right performer got the part, and Nimoy helped develop all of the primary components in concert with the TOS writers of the Vulcan culture. Right. But Leonard, Mark Leonard, stuck so closely to what was established. It was it was just perfect. You see, in in some cases, and even in Star Trek Four, I saw Vulcan smiling. In some cases, you see Vulcans portrayed by performers who are not Leonard Nimoy or Mark Leonard, and it doesn't feel quite right. Even in TOS, you know, it's just there's something that's a little off, but it never feels off with those two guys. It's always right. pitch perfect. And uh, this has been the Vulcan Hour. But uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Actually, uh, one last bit of Vulcan uh, hour trivia, uh, Chris. Who is your your favorite non Spock Vulcan actor? Ooh. So, so you can't pick anybody who's played Spock. Probably Tim Russ. All right. Okay. Um, I mean, we got the most time with Tuvok. Uh, not uh, to to take away from Jolene Blaylock, I thought that she right, did a yeah. great job as to Paul, but um, Tim Russ seemed really, really effectively dialed into playing a pure Vulcan, um, right. in a way that felt kind of harsher than Spock, which was appropriate considering what Tuvok's role was in in on the Voyager crew. And Tuvok was also full Vulcan, yeah, right, yeah. So. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, he, sometimes the writing didn't do him some favors, but in terms of the performer himself, I always love seeing Voyager outtakes because it's always Tim Russ. It's making everybody laugh and <laughs> you never see that facade break when he's on and, right. and takes that they actually use for the episodes. It's, uh, he's, I think he's a, I think he's kind of underrated as a, as a performer in the franchise, uh, but Voyager seems like it's getting new levels of appreciation now. So maybe that'll change. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. I, I mean, he was also Tuvix. So, yeah. 
<laughs> oh man, so much hate for two What about you? Do you have a uh, a favorite Vulcan that you wanted to share? Yeah, I, well, I I think it's Tim Russ. Um, I, I think for lots of the same reasons that that you gave. Um, that uh, yeah, like he he kind of was an enigma, mm-hmm. even though you spent seven seasons with him. There was you know like you you met his family but even after all of that i still feel like i don't know tuvok sure well and i mean and and also in that show we've seen how old he is right i mean we've seen how how far back his uh lineage in starfleet goes but he's also a full vulcan who uh recognizes when he does make mistakes because spock was almost not allowed to make mistakes Right. Like he was kind of, there were a couple of key episodes like Galileo seven where Spock's under full command for the first time. And his command ends up seeing a couple of people die and he has to wrestle with that. But for the most part on that show and in the subsequent films, he is like a rock, you know, he is dependable. He can always be counted on to make the right decision. Um, And Tuvok was a little more open to the idea of making mistakes uh and um and trying to do better for them and uh, i think that that's something that is appreciated but you know that's just take nothing away from from tapal who had a very different kind of character arc in some ways um she was hampered by the fact that she was an attractive woman on television so they're going to pigeonhole her into things right. that uh, right. men certainly wouldn't get pigeonholed into, but at the same She's time, got decam- decontaminate, man. Oh man, the decon <laughs> chamber. Every time I see the decon chamber, I just roll my eyes. Even when they like, they do what they can with it in some places. Like when you see Porthos getting gelled, right? Right. But you know, then then it inevitably just goes to the camera lingering way too long on Jolene right. Laylock, and it's just like yeah. God. It's a good thing that um, – I, I, let me put it this way. I'm glad that Jerry Ryan gets to be more comfortable on the set of Picard now. Mm-hmm. So right. you know, that is what it is. But anyway, right. <laughs> we do have new Star Trek to talk about. So yeah. let us transition into talking about the first two episodes of season two of Star Trek Lower Decks, Strange Energies, and Kayshawn, His Eyes Open. So Lower Decks is back. Um, Cicero, you and I pretty much took point when it comes to providing perspective on the first season of this show. Right. Uh, So I think it's pretty safe to say that we were both looking forward to its return. Um, Tell me, the months of expectations, you've seen the the first two episodes now. Uh, I don't think it's super necessary to go blow by blow. I think it's better to just kind of talk about what uh, what happened in the episodes in general and how you felt about them. So the return of Star Trek Lower Decks, what'd you make of it? So the, the beginning of episode one, um, probably through the first act, I was very worried that they kind of had run out of stories um, and that this was one of those, this was a lightning in a bottle thing um, that, I would enjoy, but not love the way that I, you know, the way that I loved 
uh, season one. And then by the third act, I was, I was on board, but still kind of hesitant going into episode two. By the end of episode two, I'm fully on board. I'm ready to go. <laughs> um, I love the fact, again, so basically I'm watching two versions of Lower Decks in the Orville and Lower Decks. Um, the Orville, well, Orville still on hiatus, um, but I I love that show because it gives me the TNG with, you know, toilet humor, or at least it, there was, it was, was a lot of, uh, you know, fart jokes uh, to begin with. And now they're, now they're doing more character stuff, which is great, but it, you know, you still have those really great TNG style uh, story beats and, and lots and lots of TNG uh, former cast members uh, that either are cast members on, on this show or TNG era cast members that are cast members on this show, or at least uh, guest stars on, on that show. Uh, so that part is great. But what I love about lower decks is how they're able to make star Trek jokes. Like I feel like watching lower decks is like watching a stand-up comedian who who was who killed at a Star Trek convention right like all of the <laughs> jokes are for people who love this franchise yeah and they're such smart jokes tailored specifically for that niche. Uh, yeah, I, I really, really appreciate that. I, but, but I mean, I said the same thing last year and, and uh, you know, my stepson kind of was a, a guinea pig for me and, and but I'll, I'll say it again, like it's hard for me to understand if people who don't watch, who aren't familiar with the franchise mm -hmm. can really appreciate the jokes. Um, because the, to me, they, they are all so very inside. Mm -hmm. They're so inside baseball. Um, but, but, uh, you know, I guess I, I'll have to have my stepson come and watch. I think he actually came in when I was watching episode two and he sat for, you know, five or 10 minutes and he was laughing when things were funny that were happening. So sure. Maybe, you know, maybe they just work. Yeah. I mean, it, I think that it's a fair point to bring up that. Well, yeah, I think that it's a fair point to bring up that uh, the humor is very clearly designed for a very specific kind of audience. Um, but at the same time, too, it's part of me is just wondering, OK, well, why did they do it this way? It clearly the the kind of esoteric nature of the humor they're not afraid of of going too deep and they think that um the audience that does exist for this show will be able to kind of come along for the ride and uh and i guess that that's i mean if they think that they can get away with it then great because the beneficiaries are clearly people like you and me who have seen all of this franchise and who right. are uh have, have bought into the idea of 
ongoing Star Trek and the idea of the Star Trek universe is kind of a living ongoing thing where certain productions are affected by what goes on in, in the other productions. I mean, we've brought up the comparison a lot on this show, but I mean, Star Trek was doing the MCU thing years before the MCU came along. Right. And um, I mean, shared universe fiction wasn't really happening all that much in live action outside of like soap operas that had been running for decades. Um, And Star Trek kind of came along and innovated the concept for a lot of the things that are in play now. Um, And didn't, it doesn't seem to get enough credit for that, <laughs> but um, maybe I just have a persecution complex when it comes to my Star Trek. Um, but uh, and it's, I mean, both both things can be true. The, the, yeah, that's true. That is absolutely the case. But um, in terms of just the way that these episodes struck, I adored the season premiere because it really went all in on kind of poking fun at ideas that were presented primarily in the original series. You know, the, the whole like godlike person thing is something that we saw. I mean, we saw it in some of the later shows as well. Um, and it poked fun at a couple of those instances. Like I got some season seven cast vibes from from the first episode, but, um, you know, obviously they mentioned Gary Mitchell by name directly in strange energies in the season premiere. So I I was along for the ride and um, loved the idea of Ransom trying to remake the world around him in his own image. And it just kind of feeds into what we had seen before from his ego. and But right. he also has these weird kind of annoying and small petty insecurities that are now amplified by a billion because of his godlike <laughs> powers. And... Um, and it's just it's just funny. It's just icing on the cake when they can make jokes about the the Tamarian language or when Riker starts to go into to jazz lingo, uh, <laughs> much to the chagrin of, of Lieutenant Boimler. Uh, I mean, it's just it, it's a pure joy to watch. And I know that there are some longtime Star Trek fans who are really dismayed by the direction that Lower Decks goes into. But really? Where are you finding you need to you like seriously you need to find a different corner of the internet. Well see here's the thing though man a friend of the show who we have had on right. has outwardly spoken about his um seeming distaste for lower decks and that's oh. Kyle Sullivan of Trexpertise. Wow. Oh man. He is not I a hope fan. He's Trexpertise about those. He is- uh you know, I think that so the, I think he reviewed it and you know, when I remember seeing like some of his early reactions that he would share on social media and being kind of surprised because it seemed like he was railing against it and I think that they, he did end up making kind of like a review video, but the the tone of the video is far more mediated than what his responses appeared to be from a personal social media account. Sure. So he's just like, yeah, I didn't like this, but it, it, I mean, it's not just because it wasn't for me doesn't mean it's not for other people, which right. is fine. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine, right? Like, yeah, you're um, – I don't know, man. Like, I I want to think that – so I think that this, this show, the whole point of the show is not to gain – is not necessarily to gain uh, new Star Trek fans. 
Right? No. I think it's I think it's literally just to give Star Trek fans a different version of Star Trek. Yeah. I mean, that's, um, that's, that's what it comes down to, right? Is the idea of this multimedia franchise has existed for more than five decades now. Right. Um, can Star Trek be more than just one thing? Can it be more than the thing that it has primarily been for most of its existence? And maybe... Maybe I feel like it can be, and I'm okay with it trying out these other things because I'm used to seeing other franchise media that I absorb on a regular basis, particularly when it comes to things related to comics. I'm used to seeing those characters uh, exploited and uh, and 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 channeled and um, deconstructed in a number of different ways. Right. I mean, you look at Batman alone. That's right. a single character created right. by Bob Kane and Bill Finger <laughs> in 1939 that has spawned uh, Academy Award worthy movies like The Dark Knight um, to movies that were extremely polarizing to audiences like Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice. Right. It spawned the 1960s pop art Adam West TV show. It spawned Batman the Animated Series in the early 90s that uh, really kind of, uh, captivated audiences of that time. Uh, you have Tim Burton who's put his stamp on it. You have an abundance of creators in comics who have wildly different takes on who Batman is, but it's all still valid because he's an icon and we can look at our icons from different directions. Star Trek has the benefit of not being solely focused on a single character or single set of characters. Instead, it's a universe. And in my mind, that just makes it more ripe for exploring other angles. And it will allow Star Trek to be uh, something beyond what we have just seen for the majority of its existence. Um, Why not have a little bit of fun with it, especially if it's the kind of fun that doesn't make fun of where it came from it celebrates where it came from uh, and does not look down on its audience for enjoying in many cases, these really outlandish stories. Right. And you know, uh, as you were saying that I was thinking about another very big franchise that is set in space um, that has uh, a, a huge volume library of, of different content. And that's of course, star Wars. Um, the thought of a Star a comedy in the Star Wars universe seems apocryphal to me. It seems it seems uh, well, I I wouldn't say it. It seems uh, uh, apocryphal. I guess that's that's it seems anachronistic, right? To 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 say that there would be one, and I could see a Star Trek fan saying the same thing about Star Trek before Lower Decks. Um, but from, from my perspective, I'm assuming from your perspective as well, they did it and they did it right. Like you said, the, the point is that they are able to make fun of themselves without punching down. Yeah. And, and, and because they don't punch down, um, because they don't belittle your fandom. Uh, but instead, they laugh, they roast the franchise 
with inside jokes and and things that that seem to seem that seem you know a little weird as you as you stated before like that's the part that makes it great and it, you know i guess if if they were able to do that with star wars i'd be down for that too like if if somebody made a star wars sitcom a 30 minute sitcom i'd watch it i'd, I'd at least watch it to see if it was any good yeah sure. um but i you know i'd be dubious and i was dubious when when lower decks came about but uh they did it and they're still doing it um in in many ways i feel like lower decks is accomplishing what the orville initially set out to do but it, yes. until it developed into something else which is still great right but um like the humorous take on the long running space franchise right uh lower decks kind of uniquely occupies that category and because that humor comes from a place of love as opposed to a place of either indifference or punching down like you alluded to uh it's hard not to get caught up in it and to to find value in it especially when um one of the things we talked about before we got uh on the recording today was that the penultimate episode of season three of discovery accounted for the 800th star trek production that's incredible. There is so much material in this franchise uh, that there's not a problem of volume when it comes to trying. If, if you want serious Star Trek, you can find it. There is 800 episodes worth of material <laughs> or close to it right. that uh, that you can go back to. 800 episodes and, and movies combined uh, that you can go back to and enjoy uh, because it takes the concept seriously. But if you were at least open to the possibility that you can have a different kind of fun in the Star Trek universe without feeling like you're being talked down to by people who are making new material, then why not go along for the ride? So, yeah. So in, in, in terms of both of these episodes, we haven't talked a lot about the the second ep- well, I mean, we haven't really talked about the specifics of the episodes, but just in general, I think I preferred the second episode that featured uh, Lieutenant Kayshawn bringing a Temerian into Starfleet. Really interesting points of humor there, too, and, and just kind of that down-to-earth, like, oh, oh it's uh, Darmok and Gelada Tanagra. Uh, right. Work with you? Yes, work with you. Right. Yeah. Like, <laughs> this is great. And, and that's how people who are learning a new language, sometimes that's how they work through it. And uh, what's wrong with applying that to the concept of Tamarian storytelling language? I, I thought that that was really charming. Yeah, yeah, it was it, it was great. Again, uh, just from the title, um, you know, uh, the 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 Tamarian episode of TNG is one of those episodes that is always on someone's best of list or your must watch list of top 10, you know, or top 20 TNG episodes. Um, so to, to see Lieutenant Kayshawn here. And and to have all of those those uh, metaphors uh, be be used in the in the episode was great. Uh, I loved when uh, Mariner, after the the new character Jet, said it was. Uh, wh- what did he say? He said, "Oh, it was." Uh, he said something about Tanagra, and and Mariner's like, "Yeah, more like suck up at Tanagra." Right, like those are those are great moments. Yeah. Um, that uh, that 
really, really kind of highlight again the the stuff that we're talking about. Just loving, loving the source material enough to be able to make righteous fun of it. Yeah, um, you know, right along, they're laughing right along with you, as opposed to r- right along at you. Yeah. Yeah, um, absolutely. It, yeah, it, it is great. Uh, I, you know, I love the conceit that that got Boimler back on the Cerritos, <laughs> yeah. um, and the way that Riker was just like rolling with it because yeah. he's been there <laughs> right. is just <laughs> priceless. I mean, it's it's just hilarious, and yeah, I just uh, it, it's such a charming way to work in something that, uh, in a humorous way. That is kind of weird the more you think about it. Right. So right. like yeah. how how cavalier they they're all about, you know, uh transporter clones. Yeah. Like there is a new version of you that is alive and sentient. <laughs> oh Lord. Yeah. yeah. So it's 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 pretty great. And I mean the fact that Riker is being uh, invoked in in that kind of a story just makes it all the more appropriate and uh, and fun. I mean, it's just right. it's just fun. Um, I would have preferred learning a little bit more about what uh, what happened to Thomas, but hey, you know, can't have everything. Hey, you know, you you never know. There may be a, a Thomas Riker sighting, yeah, on on this show. Mm-hmm. Why not? Yeah, I, I mean, it would fit. I want to see Thomas Riker. I want to see Cybok. I think that there would be room for that. Uh, yeah, let's just let's have all the the like side ancillary characters that um, that seem to make an impact when they arrive, but then we heard hide nor hair of them, saw hide nor hair of right. them later on. I think that there's I, plenty of room to explore. I've got to imagine that Frakes is having a blast. Yeah, uh, reprising his role as Riker for this show. Um, and also my assumption is that we're done with the Titan as unfortunate as that may be. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, maybe, maybe we'll see it depending on how long the show goes. Maybe we'll see it at the end of this season. Maybe we'll see it again in, in subsequent seasons. Um, but, uh, yeah, you know, I think we've got, we got two episodes, uh, where the Titan was there and that was great fan service. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we're, we're back with the Cerritos, uh, and we probably won't be we won't be uh, checking in with William Boimler anytime soon. <laughs> well, you know that's okay though. I mean, the fact that we got the Titan as much as we did is a treat, as far as I'm yeah. concerned. Um, that was a show that was never made. That I was secret. I don't think there was ever really ever any talk of it either. But I was always hoping in my head that we'd get more than just novels when it came to the Titan. And uh, even if it's in animation, even if it's on a comedic show, I'm glad that we got to see the ship. I'm glad that we got to see Riker in command. And uh, now we can move on to other zany adventures in the future of the USS Cerritos. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. So, yeah. So uh, did did Rachel, has Rachel watched uh, the episodes? And, you know, I don't want to. I don't want you to necessarily have to speak for for Doctor Cloud, but oh, I won't. But what, I, I, yeah, I wouldn't presume to to take her, her or to offer her entire perspective, but right. she is absolutely a fan of the okay. ongoing right. adventures. Yeah, she right. she was a huge fan of the first season too. Um, okay, but uh, 
I think she's looking forward to to seeing more material, not just in the rest of this season, but now in subsequent seasons that we know are coming. But she is a a big fan of Lower Decks. Yes. Yes. Yeah. All right. Definitely. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Well, we'll have to we'll have to gauge the other panelists' perspective on Lower Decks the next time we get together. But uh, hey, man, thanks for coming back. Appreciate it. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for uh, opening the bridge to me, Captain. Oh, you are a member of the bridge. Are you kidding me? No, always, always glad to talk to you. And we'll have to get together, maybe in a couple of weeks. It would be nice to be able to double up on on lower decks perspectives um, going forward. That's what we're going to try to do, especially since we didn't really get a chance to cover the first season as in depth as we could. Um, but we'll try to to come back to you in a couple of weeks. Um, but that should do it for episode number 60 of discovery. Number 60. We're on number before, 60 now. Yeah. Before we go, I yeah. just want to say that the next episode of star Trek lower decks is we'll always have Tom Paris. <laughs> so I hope, I hope we get to, uh, come back in a couple of weeks and talk about, uh, a Tom Paris sighting, maybe, yeah. and uh, whatever episode four has in store for us. I wouldn't mind a direct reference to Nicholas Locarno either. I feel Ooh. like Lower Decks could do that and and have fun with it, but we'll <laughs> we'll see what happens. That would be awesome. But, uh, oh, and and one other final thing um, before we go, we did recently on August nineteenth pass an interesting milestone it was the centennial of none other than eugene wesley roddenberry uh the great bird of the galaxy himself it would have been his 100th birthday mm. and uh, there were some really great tributes that went out to him obviously you know the man himself was flawed i think most people who knew him would readily admit to that but uh you cannot deny the strength of his ideas and the enrichment that he has given the world by creating this franchise that we all love. He had a very specific vision for how he hoped the future would progress and it would progress with humanity overcoming its differences. And, um, you know, I think what was it that Jonathan Frake said that Eugene, that Gene Roddenberry told him in the 24th century, there will be no hunger, there will be no greed and all of the children will know how to read. And, uh, it's, it's, certainly brought a lot of uh, enjoyment and hope into my own life. And I know that our audience feels similarly, um, but just wanted to pay a little bit of respect. And that's going to do it for episode 60 of Discovery Debrief. Gosh, 60. That's insane. We hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please like and follow us on our social media channels. And if you'd be so kind, we'd also appreciate it if you wrote a review for the show on iTunes or Facebook. It only takes a minute and we'll be happy to read your review on the air when it's posted. If you have any questions, you can follow the show on Twitter at DSC Debrief, where you can also find all of our individual Twitter handles. And feel free to send us questions through Twitter, our Facebook like page, or by emailing us directly at hailingfrequencies at discoverydebrief.com. Please be sure to set your courses for this feed for future episodes, and be sure to join us next time as we discuss a brand new adventure and all of the news that comes with them from the final frontier. As always, though, until we meet again, please go boldly, my friends. <laughs> <laughs>